You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, it's the responsibility of every Bible teacher to attempt to illuminate the central message and the teaching of the scripture that is presented to him as he presents it to the people of God. You're not to get cute with the word of God. You're not to manipulate and twist it for your own purposes or to create your own message. You are to search it out and to discover what is the message as it was originally communicated. How would the first hearers have understood this word and how can I present that truth to the people that I am called to speak to in the culture and in the environment and in the setting that I'm in today. And as we turn to John chapter 19, we are now going to enter into and study the crucifixion account according to the Apostle John. And in so many ways, it's as if there is no message to preach. Because quite simply, this is a message of the wonderful and the deep and the powerful love of God. Let's not forget now, as we turn to John chapter 19, to pull the lens back and realize that this very event is the manifestation of the character, the nature of God himself, his holiness revealed so perfectly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his love revealed so perfectly in the crucifixion, his justice, his mercy, the wrath of God. I mean, you see these things about God as evidenced in the account of Jesus's crucifixion. And so my goal is not to add too much or to add anything really to this account, but simply to communicate what John is communicating to us about Jesus. So where we left Jesus at the end of chapter 18 was before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, as you might recall, had a sense that Jesus was an innocent man. And even though John doesn't record it, we know that by this point, Pilate had received word from his wife that she had been tormented in a dream because of Jesus. This caused Pilate to be even more concerned than all of the things that Jesus had said and what was said to him about Jesus. And so he had brought to the crowd in chapter 18 this man named Barabbas, an insurrectionist more than likely, and says to the people, would you like me to release Jesus, whom he knew to be innocent, or Barabbas? And they cried out to his surprise, Barabbas, Barabbas, but with Jesus, crucify him. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19, and it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you're familiar with the crucifixion account of Jesus, you're familiar with the idea, at least, of the flogging of Christ. And in those days, there were three different types of flogging that the Romans would utilize. One was a lighter kind of 
beating. And one was a much harsher kind of beating where the flesh would be exposed and all of that. And we know that Jesus did experience that kind of flogging. But perhaps this is referring to the first flogging and later an additional flogging occurs. It's hard to, as you read all the different gospel accounts, to really patch it all together. But this may have been the first and the lighter flogging, but nonetheless, very brutal. And the soldiers, verse 2, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now, of course, all of this is designed to mock Jesus. These soldiers, they take a fake crown made of thorns, jam it on his head, which would have been brutally painful, very long thorns in that region, and arrayed him in a purple robe. Purple, the color of royalty. This was designed to mock Jesus. The claim was that he was a king. And so they came up to him in verse 3, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You know, Jesus was willing, in other words, to endure the brutal, embarrassing, and ridiculous abuse of people that he had created. Now, of course, the soldiers mocking Jesus as a king, the soldiers spitting on him and scoffing at him, are simply a microcosm of what mankind, in one sense, had been doing to God from the very beginning. And so, we ought not to look at these soldiers as some kind of outcast of society. They, in one sense, are representatives of so much of our own lives and so much of our own world and society. And so Pilate, verse 4, went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I think Pilate was hoping that this beating and this public mockery would be enough to satisfy the thirst for blood of these accusers of Christ. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when Pilate says this, and, and it's interesting because Pilate says many things that become infamous statements later on. And this is one of them. Behold the man. And when he says this, I believe that it's dripping with irony. I think that he's saying to them, here is your dangerous and threatening man. This king that you think I should be so worried about, he's not dangerous, as you say. In fact, he's, he's nothing. And you are imbeciles for believing that he has such power and such might. Behold this pathetic-looking figure, this pathetic-looking man. Not understanding, of course, that Jesus had humbled himself and submitted himself to all of this for us. When the chief priests, verse 6, and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now when Pilate says this 
to these religious leaders, it's another slap in their face. He is not really saying to them, hey, why don't you actually take him and crucify him yourself? For that was illegal for them to do. They had no power, authority, or jurisdiction. It's as if Pilate is reminding them, you are under my rule. And here's something you want me to do that you cannot do yourself. And so he reminds them, he mocks them, he is calling them out for really selling themselves out in order to try to see Jesus crucified. And the Jews answered in verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now the truth comes out at this point. Up until now they've been telling Pilate, Hey, you know, this guy is claiming to be a king and claims to have a kingdom. And of course, you can't have, coming from your region, a report to the Caesar in Rome that there's a man cruising around, gaining a following, claiming to be a king in your region without you doing something about it. So crucify him. But really the reason that they wanted to see Jesus dead, they didn't care about Pilate and his authority and his legacy. They wanted Jesus dead because he made himself the son of God, which of course for them with their terminology, with their understanding, meant that Jesus, by proclaiming to be the Son of God, was proclaiming to be God the Son. And so they're upset at this claim of deity and want him dead because of it. And when Pilate, verse 8, heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now, Pilate had grown up in a Roman culture that was deeply superstitious. They had, of course, heard stories of human-like gods who had come down and visited men and judged them. Combining that with the word of his wife, in Matthew 27, verse 19, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate is beginning to panic. And when these men come and say, He claimed to be a son of God, Pilate goes back in and says to Jesus, Where are you from? Let's get this straight. And Jesus, with a rather ominous response, does not answer. And Pilate is growing irritated and he says to Jesus don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you and the authority to release you and listen to the response of Jesus in this chapter we're going to focus on the words of Jesus himself in verse 11 Jesus answered him you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, Jesus responds to Pilate in a fascinating way. First of all, I need to point out that he says to Pilate at the conclusion of this remark, you know, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We don't know exactly who Jesus is referring to, whether it's the religious leaders, 
or Judas Iscariot or someone else, but he is saying to Pilate, first breath, hey, you don't have any authority to do any of these things to me unless my father had given you that authority. Unless you had received it from heaven, you'd have no authority to lift a finger against me. So don't think for a moment that this authority lies with you. I'm trusting in the sovereign hand and leadership of my God and my Father. But then in the very next breath, he says, But understand, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, he's saying, The Father is sovereignly responsible for these events. However, don't think for a moment that Judas and the religious leaders are not going to answer for their sin. There is the sovereignty of God, but the responsibility of man. And Jesus claims that these men had the greater sin. But notice the trust of Jesus in his father. He says to Pilate, you'd have no authority unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knew that there was an overarching authority over his life, his father God. He trusted in the father's sovereign hand over his life. I love what, the way Paul expresses this in Ephesians 4 verse 6. He says, there is one God and father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Listen, I don't know what you're facing or what you're enduring at this particular moment. And I don't know what season of life you're in as you listen to this teaching from John chapter 19. But can you say, with Jesus, can you reply with Jesus to whatever your circumstances dictate, and whatever situation you're in, can you say, this person or this circumstance or this thing I'm facing would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to them from heaven. Now, I don't recommend actually going out and saying this to people in your life. I don't recommend going to your crooked boss or a difficult spouse or an unruly sibling or a friend who has betrayed you and say to them, I know that you would have no authority to treat me like this and to, you know, put me through what you're putting me through right now, unless it had been given to you from heaven. But to believe that internally in your heart, to trust in the sovereign hand of God, that he can use even the evil of mankind for his greater purposes and that greater good. Jesus trusted his father completely. He understood the love of his father. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So again, they're playing that very similar card. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, 
crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now this is Pilate making his official judgment upon Jesus. And he seizes upon the moment to reinforce Rome's authority in Jerusalem, in Judea, in that region. He basically, you know, causes these religious leaders to get to the point where they say, we have no king but Caesar. And how unfortunate. These men who had had David in their past and Solomon when he was walking with the Lord and and had looked forward to a coming and future king, a Messiah, for them to actually say out loud, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate gives in, and he obviously demonstrates that he fears man more than he fears God. So they took Jesus, and verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross, likely the cross beam. And to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And Golgotha, the place of the skull, this is the mountain that Jesus would be crucified or the hill that Jesus would be crucified upon. And so in verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them, even in his death. He was identified with these sinful men who were sinners and who were guilty. Jesus, of course, the innocent one there in the middle. And it just tells us there in verse 18 that there they crucified him. There's really not much else that you can say. I mean, the, the readers in John's day would understand the absolute horror of a death by crucifixion. Pilate, verse 19, also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So John records a little dispute, which I think he understands is filled with irony. They had claimed that Jesus was claiming to be the king of the Jews, although they did not believe it themselves. And so Pilate, to spite them, put up on the cross above Jesus the accusation, the king of the Jews. They knew that this was publicly shaming them. So they said, could you please change it to say, this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate, in almost a prophetic moment, says, What I have written, I have written. Jesus is, of course, the king of the Jews. And when the soldiers, verse 23, had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. And so John now is going to begin to quote some Old Testament scripture. And here he quotes from Psalm 22, verse 18, which is a remarkably detailed prophetic account of how Jesus would be crucified. And the interesting part of this prophecy is, when I'm crucified, he's saying, they'll take my garments and they will divide them. There were four soldiers that were responsible for this crucifixion, and so you just divide them up by four, but they will also cast lots for them. And so there was one garment, his tunic, or his sort of undergarment, that had no seam, and they didn't want to divide that or break it up, so they cast lots in order to fulfill what Psalm 22, verse 18, had prophesied. So the soldiers did these things, but verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Isn't it interesting, all of these women there at the cross? And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, verse 27, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now there's this interesting interaction here on the cross. This is actually the third statement of Jesus upon the cross, but the first one that John records. He had previously said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the thief on the cross, he had declared to him, today you will be with me in paradise. John doesn't record that portion of Jesus' crucifixion, but he records this interesting note. Mary is standing there amongst other women who loved and knew Jesus. And John is there as well, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus looks at Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and says, behold your mother. And the interpretation of that or the response to that was, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, there have been those who have tried to find some deep theological meaning here, some kind of significance of, you know, Israel and the church being typified by Mary and, and by John. But I, I think that the way that they took this was very straightforward. John heard those words and thought to himself, he wants me to take this woman into my home to care for her like a son would care for his own mother. Uh, Jesus was, of course, the oldest son in the family, a hard-working man. It appears that Joseph had died years earlier, and so Jesus was responsible and would take care of his mother. He'd provide for her and defend her and protect her. And here he's telling John, I am transferring this obligation to you. And I just think it's interesting to notice Jesus' care for his people. And to just think of all of the moments that Jesus could have thought of himself, of all of the moments that he could have selfishly focused on his own thing, and really wouldn't even have been selfishness. But selflessness overwhelmed his heart. And even in his moment of despair, he cared for his mother. And that should, of course, remind us 
that as he lives to make intercession for us, even in his seat on heaven, in heaven, he thinks of us, he takes care of us, he desires to minister to us. After this scene, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of full sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And so the fifth statement of Jesus on the cross, Jesus, when it was dark, had said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here we have his next statement. After all of that, after the three hours of darkness, knowing that all was now finished, which means that he had fully atoned for the sin of the world at this point. He cries out and he says, I thirst. Just the humanity of Christ. He had declared his thirst previously to the woman at the well way back in John chapter 4. She never brought him a drink, but here he thirsts upon the cross and cries out, he suffered physically. But this is the greatest statement that Jesus made concerning his physical suffering. It says that in verse 30 that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The final thing that he said after it is finished is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus made a decision. It was time for him to die. But focus now for a moment on the words. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus looked at his life, looked at what he had accomplished there upon the cross, and he proclaims with finality, it's finished. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ was made to be sin. Him who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And even before he actually physically died, he had gone through such spiritual death for you and for me that he could proclaim it is finished. It's the word to telestai. It means that it is paid in full. You would receive receipts at that moment to say it is paid in full. And what you need to know today as we close out this section in John 19 is that the cross of Christ is enough. It is not the cross of Christ plus anything else that can cause a man to say it is finished. I have now received righteousness or earned righteousness. No, it is something that you receive from the cross of Christ exclusively by placing your faith, your trust, your confidence in what he did for you upon that cross, that he substituted himself for you, died in your place, and rose from the dead so that if you would believe that he took your place, you might rise to life with him and become a new creation in his sight. The old passing away and all things becoming new. And so Jesus cried out and said, It is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and next time we'll see his burial as well as his resurrection god bless you and amen thank you for listening 
for additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.